this is really important for us as the public, for communities, for people, just to make sure that a decision like this doesn't go through. It doesn't set a terrible precedent so that we continue eroding our park system. We want to make sure that it's strong, it's there for both, you know, environmental protection and for everyday people. Forgotten Corner Podcast would not exist without our listeners. If you enjoy the work we are doing on this show and would like to support further, please consider a donation through our Patreon account, patreon.com backslash forgottencornerpod, or visit our website, forgottencornerpod.com. Welcome back to the Forgotten Corner Podcast. I'm Scott Schmidt. I'm here alongside with my co-host, Jeremy Appel. Jeremy, say hello to everyone. Longer your friend. Oh, man. See, well, every time I listen to the show, I'm like, Jesus Christ, man. You really should switch this up a little bit. You sound like a broken record every time. Like every single time I introduce Mo, I introduce him as editor, producer, and everything in between. And it's like, but I'd switch it up. So what is the one thing I drop is that you're my friend. Sorry, Jeremy, my good friend. How are you today, buddy? Uh, I'm doing. I'm doing well now that I've been uh, promoted to uh, your friend. Yeah, well, I know. I don't. I don't want like this early in the morning. I don't want you feeling slighted by any means. So, um, how's your week been? It's been all right. That's it. You got yeah. no stories for me lately. You've been like hitting me up with some good stories. Yeah, I've got. I've got a real banger of a story uh, coming out. Um, like next month, I, I was just assigned it, but it's gonna be it's gonna be a good one. Nice, so nice. Stay tuned. stay tuned, absolutely. Well, I'm glad you're doing some work. I want to say hi to Mo Cranker, our editor and producer, but he told me not to today. If you listened last week, he sounded like he was in a I don't know underwater in a jet room. I don't know something, but he was which is where he was. Yeah, that's correct. Well, and, no, he uh, was in he was in a flotation tank. Wow. He said he couldn't find a room small enough to speak today. So he's just going to sit there quietly judging us as we go, but that's okay. Um, We have a good episode that we really want to get into here anyways. So enough of us just chatting like idiots and um, let's do this. We talk about a lot of things on this show, right? And, And we often kind of, it all kind of equates back to this current provincial government we have and and, the, and their sort of unabashed neoliberal plans for uh, how they will treat Alberta. And the subject that we're discussing today is not something that gets a ton of attention, I don't think. Um, and uh, if you judge by the uh, petitions and the backlash that the public is giving on this stuff, it's actually pretty important to people. So uh, hopefully today we can shed some, shed some light on the, the subject of Alberta's parks and uh, some of the things that the United Conservative government have um, announced and decided to do with it. So let's get on with the show. Um, Albertans have a lot to think about right now. We have a pandemic, we have a struggling economy, we have a government hell-bent on turning every aspect of the lives we know into a money-making scheme for the corporate rich. And considering the province went into lockdown only a couple weeks later, the announcement in March that the United Conservatives will close 20 provincial parks and seek third-party management for a total of 164 sites hasn't got a ton of attention. But a petition with more than 57,000 signatures suggests the public cares about these sites a lot more than media like us give credit for. 
And we need to quit letting everything else that is going on take away from what is yet another UCP decision with detrimental consequences. The Alberta Wilderness Association is a Calgary-based nonprofit conservation group established in 1965 with a vision of caring for and preserving the province's wild spaces and protected areas. The AWA has been actively speaking out since the March announcement with the hopes of convincing the government to reverse its decision. Grace Wark is a conservation specialist with the AWA and she joins us this week on the Forgotten Corner to offer some expertise on what is going on, what this means for Alberta, and what maybe Albertans can do about it. Grace, welcome to the show. Good morning, thanks so much. Appreciate you coming on and uh, <laughs> uh, I really appreciate you coming on on such early uh, in your weekend here we make people do this at 9 a.m on saturdays so. uh, what else would i rather do on a saturday uh, i guess we really test whether people how badly people want to be on this show so <laughs> we find out just by scheduling so listen the first thing first what we want to kind of want to get you to explain a little bit about what you do so do you mind just sort of running through what exactly is a conservation specialist um and and how did you uh, personally end up becoming one Oh, that's a great question. So, uh, you know, as a, as a conservation specialist, the job is essentially to keep a close eye on what's happening on Alberta's landscapes. So, you know, keeping, keeping an eye on, on what are the current population trends for wildlife, uh, what's happening in our headwaters, what are the current government policy decisions and, you know, industrial proposals that might actually change land use and the sustainable management of our landscapes. And so, uh, yeah, we, we keep a pulse on all of these things. We get involved as, as much as we can. Uh, my particular corner of Alberta is Southern Alberta, which <laughs> believe it or not covers quite a bit of territory. So uh, yeah, my, my work is focused on the grasslands, focused on the mountains and all the parks that are found within them, whether it's provincial or national uh, and just about everything in between. Uh, so yeah, I, I ended up here uh, just following my, my BSc in environmental science from the University of Calgary. I uh, ended up presenting some of my honors thesis work, which was on open data and the environment and how, you know, having access to information can actually improve the way that civil society organizations work. Presented that to the AWA and, and not two weeks later, a position ended uh, opening up there and it, it seemed to be a, a pretty good fit for me. Uh, given that my research really kind of opened my eyes to how if we have access to information, if people have the right tools, they can engage in, uh, you know, these massive uh, decision-making processes, environmental decision-making processes that affect all of our lives. And uh, yeah, been there ever since. Now, there's, there, there are a number of different groups that do work like this, you know, um, and, and some some more specialized than others you spoke said that this was kind of like the perfect fit for you can you just tell us a little bit about what the alberta wilderness association is um uh, and sort of are you affiliated with anyone else and and um and that kind of thing just why this group specifically as opposed to any other um sort of fits what you are interested in yeah sure um so you know to kind of get into it. it, it helps to kind of look back at AWA's history. So as you said, you know, we were founded in 1965. We we're celebrating our, our 55th year. And we were originally founded just around someone's kitchen table in the Crow's Nest Pass. It was a group of, of passionate people who loved to get into the backcountry, whether they were hunters, uh, hikers, mountaineers, biologists. 
And they, you know, looked at the state of the southern eastern slopes, the southern Rockies, and, and they weren't happy with what they were seeing. They saw rampant land use, uh, you know, the, the destruction of, of what were once healthy ecosystems, and they said, we need a change for this. And so, you know, that's, that's at the heart of AWA, what we are. We're, we're a community-based organization. We started from people, uh, and we've since expanded to have more of a provincial scope. Um, so now we cover everything from, you know, woodland caribou in, in the boreal and along the foothills to, to uh, you know, protecting our native prairies in the grasslands. Um, but this, this kind of two-pronged work that we do are, are, is, uh, you know, what drew me to the organization so much. Uh, you know, our, our core mandate is, is essentially to inspire people to care about wilderness uh, through awareness and action. And so the action is the one where we're working with, with government and industry um, and other proponents in order to make sure that they're, you know, managing our landscape sustainably. But the awareness part uh, is, is particularly important to me in that, you know, as I was saying, when you, when you give people access to information, uh, they can make change on their own because it's our communities who kind of feel most strongly these environmental decisions. Uh, so that's that's really how I landed it at uh, AWA and and, and uh, what makes the organization so special. Um, yeah, we are we are our own organization, so we're not um, affiliated with any other bigger groups, but we do work with a lot of uh, the other major environmental NGOs in the province. You've probably heard of some of the other ones who are working on on this parks issue in particular as well, whether it's uh, the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society, CPAWS, uh, the Alberta Environmental Network, uh, many more. <laughs> yeah, it seems like a pretty broad coalition you have there. Uh, you mentioned it was founded by you know, hunters, conservationists, uh, et cetera, et cetera. How do you keep that together? Well, you know, a lot of people come in with a lot of <laughs> different opinions on how the landscapes are managed. And it's a really good question on, on, yeah, how we all work together. I think it's that common thread of just, you know, the passion for making sure that we still have wilderness for generations to come that, that brings people together. And even though we have, you know, some different opinions on how, uh, on how the land should be managed, it, at the end of the day, you can work towards a common goal and, uh, and uh, have some really positive outcomes from it. Now you say that's about, you know, it's about passion and things like that. And I just think about, you know, sometimes I judge some of these professions, right? We get into these jobs that we want to do because it's like something we love, right? But then there's this, there's always this, what, what your level of satisfaction is. Some jobs um, are kind of just destined to be fighting for something that you never get, I guess. You know, my, uh, my brother-in-law, uh, who, who, who does this kind of thing. He's actually an instructor at the college here now, but he started as like the range biologist for CFB Suffield. And his job was to basically let them know um, where and when they could be doing testing and when they had to like let the land breathe a little bit and move around. And they had him as a job because it was mandated, but they never listened to him is what I'm saying. So it was like a lifetime of fighting for something that you could never get. Mm -hmm. What has been, like before the UCP, and I know it's probably, that means it's mostly before your time, but what has the AWA's sort of results been like? Have they, is this a group that has enacted, like affected change in Alberta, or is this a group that has been fighting for something that gets ignored? If, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely it does. Um, I feel like you can say it's probably a little bit of both, uh, because obviously if you look at how, Things have changed in Alberta since 1965. Obviously, we've come a long way, 
Um, you know, we've, we've expanded uh, things like our protected areas network. We have uh, new parks like the castle um, that are a testament to the work that we've been doing. We really cared about that region and eventually we worked with government processes and with people to achieve a park like that. But at the same time, yeah, we're still working on a lot of the same stuff, you know, resource extraction. We need to make sure that things like that when they're being done in the Rockies are being done sustainably. Sometimes they're not. Um, and so, you know, a lot of the time, yeah, we're, we're still working towards some of the same goals that we've been working on for, for 55 years, whether myself or, you know, my predecessors at the organization. You probably thought it was hard before. So maybe that's a good transition, a good segue into, into what we uh, brought you here today to talk about. Is, um, I, I came across your name in an op-ed um, for the Narwhal recently and uh, a good piece um, we immediately, we were just talking about how we should do a parks episode. And then I read this piece and I thought, well, I think we have, um, the person we want to have on. So, um, the, the announcement itself that we're talking about here today was the Alberta government planning on closing some parks and, um, and turning over a bunch of others to third-party management. So we have some questions about that for explanation purposes for our listeners today. For the first thing I want to say to everyone, the sales job that we got from the government on this was that it was going to save $5 million. Keep Remember that because if you listen to this show, you know that $5 million is nothing. And uh, anytime a government tells you they're making a big decision to save 5 million bucks, you can rest assured there's other reasons for why they're doing it. So do you want to, can you first just sort of give us a, an overview explanation of what this decision actually entails? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So as you said, this decision was made earlier in the year. In February, the, the um, government decided to close or partially close 20 sites. And then further to that, to delist or deregulate 164 sites. So what this means is they're taking this 164 sites out of our provincial park system and they're either handing them over to what they're calling uh, alternative management uh, systems or you know, third party partnerships, um, or you know, they're, they're deregulating them uh, to now become vacant public lands. Uh, so this can mean a couple of different things. As for you know, the partnerships, uh, there's a lot of big question marks around that right now because the government's been very reluctant to release any information on how those new partners will manage these sites. Will it be the same as the park system was before or will it be something entirely new? Um, and then for, uh, for the, the vacant public lands uh, angle, that's, that's something entirely different. And, you know, um, the government's been fairly adamant that, that, that this won't result in much change. Albertans will still have access to these places. But, you know, as I'm sure we're going to get into pretty soon here, uh, public lands are, are managed very differently than our park system. Um, and so at the end of the day, yeah, we're, we're going to see quite a bit of change out of this decision and uh, definitely have a lot of, of questions about it from the missing information. Now, we on our show, we have our opinions on why they do things like this and, and uh, we'll handle the laying out that stuff for you today. But it seems each time they do anything, it's always got sort of this underlying theme of, of opening it up to, to profit making. Okay. 
can you just uh, give us an explanation? What is third-party management? That, mm-hmm. to, it almost sounds like it's used as a dog whistle for privatization to me. And so I'm just, do you mind giving the listeners a sort of an explanation of what they're, at least what are they saying that they're, they're sure. doing with this? Yeah, on paper, you know, in, in the government's news release back in February, it was third-party partnerships meant passing it over to municipalities, nonprofit organizations, or indigenous groups. Um, but that can be defined pretty broadly, you know, and uh, there are a lot of different things that can be a nonprofit organization, and, um, as well as municipalities can also have a bit of a hard time sometimes when it, it to me, it sort of seems like a downloading of costs as well. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's still, I'll have to say, it's been pretty ambiguous around what that partnership definition means. Uh, but on paper, yeah, that's, that's uh, what they've been saying is to those three different bodies. It feels like they obviously are giving it a broad stroke meaning on purpose, right? Like they, they want to be able to say like, oh no, this is going to be like a municipality or a nonprofit organization or something like this is going to take these over. But it's not saying, it's not saying that it won't give these off to private management, right? And mm-hmm, private mm-hmm. businesses and these kinds of things. So we just, I just want to, because um, it doesn't, obviously this isn't the kind of thing where um, they're closing these parks and every single one of them is going to be a coal mine tomorrow, but we want to, we want to kind of give people an idea of, of sort of what this opens things up for. Jeremy, go ahead, bud. So the government says that there's going to be uh, 17% uh, protection of uh, these parks. Um, why should we be uh, skeptical of that? Because um, it doesn't it doesn't sound like a whole lot. Um, but yeah, what, what, is there a cause for um, skepticism there? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it, it, you're right. It was it was reaffirmed within the. 2020 uh, ministry budget documents to say, yes, the government, Alberta Environment Parks is going to protect 17% of our landscapes and our waters by the year 2021. That was the goal. And this is part of this this larger federal initiative uh, called Canada Target One, where, you know, every province in Canada nationwide, we were going to achieve this one big target by the year 2020, which we're now in, (laughs) of 17% protection. And um, Alberta was originally a co-chair um, prior to prior to the election. We were a co-chair of this initiative, um, and so you know it was it was pretty promising at the time when this decision was made. Um, but yeah, as time has gone on, um, we have not seen any plans for how that 17% protection is going to be achieved. And yeah, taking parks out of the system is also not conducive to achieving a target like that. You know, the, the government has been really reluctant to provide any information on how they're going to achieve that target. And I think, by and large, they might be turning to, to other mechanisms. This is kind of a, a shift we might be seeing in how, um, you know, the, the province considers conservation initiatives away from formal protected areas like provincial parks, uh, recreation areas, natural areas, etc., uh, towards more of a crown lands approach, or maybe also turning towards uh, private protections as well to, to lean on that and to achieve that that seventeen percent. And how does uh, privatization, you know, selling off these lands uh, to third parties, whatever that means, uh, how, how does that inhibit um, 
can start memory? Mm -hmm. No, that, that's a good question. So it, it comes down to what's the purpose of a park, firstly. So, so why were these parks put there in the first place? Even though they're small, they, they still have really important values for things like, you know, migrating wildlife, they provide refuge, they, some of them have critical habitat for threatened and endangered species, um, and many of them are found around water bodies, which are just these hubs for biodiversity. And so that's why they were protected in the first place. And, and what can happen um, when lands are sold, this can happen sometimes with, you know, our public lands. Uh, we saw a recent sale near, near Tabor earlier in the, in the year, um, is that it, then these landscapes which have, you know, these thriving ecosystems, they can have a number of different natural features that, that are, you know, being protected, it can be converted. You know, this happens a lot in the, in the grasslands and the parking. We see the conversion of our native prairie landscapes, which takes away really what makes that natural region so special. And it can also, you know, uh, take a hit to, to local biodiversity. Um, so it's, it's, it's things like that. It's, it's, you know, disturbance from, you know, other uh, uh, industrial leaseholds. You know, oil and gas has its own um, impacts to, to local environments. Um, and so if, if sites like these were opened up, to whether it's industrial leaseholds, agriculture, et cetera, it can have a number of uh, environmental impacts. One of the ways that, I, like one of the ways that this is sort of being framed, I guess, is, is this, this 5% of protected grasslands is what's being opened up. Is that correct? Like the, the current, it's 5% of what we're currently protecting. And depending on who you ask, that could be sold in a different, in, in, in various ways, right? You can be like, yeah, it's only 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 five percent. But Alberta was, in your view, quite underprotected going into this. Can you just speak to that? That that Alberta was behind in your eyes before the UCP started this goal. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, looking looking at that seventeen percent target, um, it didn't have. Firstly, we we didn't haven't met the target yet. We're only somewhere around fifteen percent. Um, but it didn't have what we call representative protection. Uh, and to explain what that is, it's, it's uh, looking at Alberta has different natural regions, whether it's the Rockies, the parkland, the grasslands, the foothills. Uh, we're really, really good at protecting areas like our Rocky Mountains because they're so popular for tourism. They have really important headwaters, which, you know, provide a sustainable water source for, for the rest of southern Alberta and into, uh, you know, the other prairie provinces. But looking at our, our grasslands, it's, uh, you know, leading up until now only had 1.25% of its land base protected under parks and other conservation measures. So to strip 5% of that protection away is actually really significant, especially when our grasslands holds uh, over 75% of Alberta's species at risk. And so these sites are, are actually performing a really important uh, purpose. They, they're, they're there to, to protect those habitats, um, as well as provide, you know, accessible recreation opportunities for uh, just folks who are, who are looking to get out of the, looking to get out of Dodge for a little bit. But um, yeah, the, this, this is definitely a hit to our, our grasslands and, and other regions, which have just been historically uh, underrepresented in Alberta's protected areas network. Well, and I want to make a quick connection for uh, Forgotten Corner folks, because here in the southeast corner, um, in, in the last few years, uh, we actually used to have a reporter that like just loved to report on this, but the sage grouse is a, uh, one of those species at risk. And uh, our, our, 
this is good old Medicine Hat. The city of Medicine Hat is currently in a joint action lawsuit with another oil company against the federal government because the federal government enacted some the Species at Risk Act and, and wanted uh, certain lands uh, protected. And out by Many Berries, Medicine Hat, town of Many Berries, Medicine Hat owns uh, some oil plays out there. And it was affecting our ability to drill there. And so... In our, we we were like, and one of our excuses is that, well, you know, there's sage grouses in Montana. So, like, why do we care if they're extinct in Alberta? So, anyways, I just wanted to make a quick connection that um, we Forgotten Corner people should know a little bit about uh, fighting for grassland protection and the species there. So, I'm sure you know something about that story, too. Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. And and it, it might be worth noting, too, that... Uh supposedly the city of medicine hat did have fair warning uh you know before purchasing those lands um in i actually can name the sorry i could name the counselor like phil counselor counselor phil turnbull who ran for mayor uh, of a while ago um one of the biggest things has one of his biggest things was like we are blowing it by buying the and there's like 40 million dollars like in the tank and he's like let's not do this and everybody's like oh we're doing it and he's now the chair of the uh energy committee for the city because i think they were like i ah, mean we should maybe we should listen to this guy he knows what he's doing anyways that was a little bit off topic but that's that's how that's what living in the forgotten corner is like drill baby drill so anyway um <clears throat> So I wanted to I wanted to ask you something today because one of the another one of the things that the UCP sort of said as they were announcing this was that I remember Jason Nixon specifically saying Environment Minister Jason Nixon is specifically saying that you know all of these sites are still going to be protected under the Public Lands Act. Can you tell us the difference between the Parks Act that has that did protect these when they were listed and the Public Lands Act and why that might be insufficient? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the Parks Act uh, kind of follows two primary purposes, the first of which conservation. So making sure we're protecting, you know, important natural features, species at risk, habitat, we're not, you know, eroding the site. Um, and there are specific measures in place to do that, um, including conservation officers and just investing in, in, in conservation initiatives. And then, uh, yeah, the second purpose of the, the Parks Act is also to provide accessible recreation to anyone in the province. Um, so to make sure that within, essentially within an hour's drive, of uh, any municipality people can get out and access their parks. The, the Public Lands Act, on the other hand, is, is more for managing land use and for managing industrial leases. So there's specific language in there to essentially accommodate those things to make sure that they're regulating, you know, industrial use on the landscape and, and sometimes balancing it with recreation as well. But the Parks Act is really what tackles that conservation angle and and i essentially see it as a form of of targeted investment into you know the long-term management of these sites into protecting their local ecosystems um and you know the the, the public lands act just doesn't have that conservation focus and so that's that's kind of one of the the more concerning aspects about this decision is that you know even if they're handed over to to third-party partners 
uh, this, these lands are still going to be converted to public lands. And so they're not going to have the regulatory backstop anymore to say, you know, say a, a private partner wanted to do something that could be uh, potentially environmentally damaging. I, I don't know if that that regulatory backstop would be there anymore. Um, and, and, you know, another thing that that may be worth mentioning as well is that even though I am, I am, a, I firmly believe that Alberta's public lands are an absolute resource to us. There, there have been many instances as well where they've been mismanaged and, and we've seen that happening. You know, I've, I've spent my, my fair share of time out in the public lands uh, just west of Calgary, whether it's Wipris or McLean Creek, and, and you occasionally witness, uh, you know, illegal or inappropriate activities happening there where people are, you know, burning garbage, illegal dumping, uh, mud bogging. Um, and so, you know, when there's just this attitude of these lands are being monitored, they're potentially not being regulated, then uh, people can get away with a lot more behaviors which can be environmentally damaging. And so that's, that's a real risk from this and, and the targeted investment from the Parks Act is, is important to protecting what makes these sites so special. Yeah, so the, there's already you know, issues with uh, people uh, engaging in environmentally destructive activities on these park sites uh, but at, at least there's the means with which to address those now but you put in potentially the profit motive and that is put on the back burner right it's it's a pretty unprecedented decision too that's why i'm having such a hard time just grappling with what does this decision mean because you don't see other provinces stripping sites away from their park system. It's not something we've done. Although, you know, we have seen this happen before during the, the Klein era where you privatize park sites and, and a lot of them fell into disarray. And so, you know, that's something we could potentially see with this decision as well. And you mentioned the Klein era. So what happened as a result of that and sort of what were its long-term implications? Well, it's, it's, you know, kind of similar to what we're seeing now where, where park sites were privatized, they were handed over to, to private owners and yeah, it can be, it can be expensive to run a campsite or maybe, you know, you just have to reinvent the wheel because they don't have people like wildlife biologists on hand to, to make sure that these sites are being managed properly. And so at the end of the day, as I said, they kind of uh, fell by the wayside and it was costly to have to bring those back into the park system and fix them up again and make sure they were up to standard so that, that people could once again access these, these sites, whether they're, they're campsites or otherwise. So yeah, we're at just a little bit of a lesson, a history lesson, and uh, maybe something we should take note of. The show's best friend is a historian. So, I mean, we like history lessons on this show. That's, that's what we do is we like to learn. So I want to ask you something a little bit more present day, I guess, because it was just last month where um, a story came out and I love how this government does this, but they wanted the story to be that uh, they were going to inject 43 million bucks into um, existing park sites. But the, the fine print of this story was that, that they were going to go ahead with the delisting of all the parks that we, because, uh, uh, sorry, back quick. When the pandemic hit, there were, they did back off uh, 17 or 20 of these closers or something like that because people want to use that, right? And so this, they, they do these things where they're like, oh, see, look at us. And then 
just last month they had this story come out where where they're going to inject 43 million bucks into the existing sites but by the way we're still going to delist 175 or so do you, what do you make of that when 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 uh these things does that 43 million bucks is that is that really anything or, or is this like a, a olive branch from the government or is it a don't look over there branch <laughs> yeah it's it's tough to say because you know firstly i you know i don't know if this is new money per se looking back at the budget this was just wrapped into the parks budget and they're saying okay we're going to allocate this now to existing park sites we're going to work on uh say restoring trout habitat like i can't argue that's an important thing to do but when you're you're looking at that 43 million dollars that's being injected into these park sites and then saying okay well five million dollars to keep these park sites within the system it's just not computing for me i think you know there are many good reasons um, even economic reasons to, to keep these parks within the system and one thing that's been really frustrating is we still haven't seen you know the economic accounting of that five million dollar savings we don't know what the breakdown is those numbers haven't been released um, and in many ways i think you know they haven't been considering how those sites and how having access to an abundant you know a, a park system that covers our entire province also contributes to you know local economies whether it's gateway communities it's investing in you know people need equipment to go down and visit a park and i think it's the the outdoor recreation council of alberta actually estimates that you know activities like hiking and camping and biking uh contribute to i think around five billion dollars gdp and so there's there's the unspoken economic benefits of these sites and you know, I, I really think that that a $5 million savings isn't, it's, it, this is an investment into, uh, you know, these, these park sites for the health of Albertans and for our landscapes. And it's just not worth it. And it's, yeah, it's not making sense either with, with the 40, the recent $43 million investment. Well, I, I just don't, 5 million bucks. Like if you aren't aware as an Albertan in 2020, almost 2021, running $25 billion deficits because of pandemics and such. If you're not aware that 5 million bucks is a literal statistical anomaly, like it is, if there, if any time someone tells you, Oh, we're saving 5 million bucks, that should be a red flag. I'm sorry. It just should. Mm -hmm. This is pro and so that's the other thing I, I want to ask you because, um, you always hear things about like, you know, the government's like, Oh, we got to run the nation like a business and these kinds of things. And, it's like they're they're discussing these parks as if that they're um, they should be run as an enterprise, right? Like that they're supposed to make money somehow, or that yeah. having these parks is about like how do we get money back for these parks? But to me, it's kind of like having a transit system in a city. Like who the shit cares if it makes money? You need to have one of these things to exist. Protecting parks isn't about whether the province makes money. Do you want to just speak to that aspect of this a little bit for me? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, just in, in my opinion, parks don't like they, they, they don't lose money, they cost money. We're, we're making sure that, that, you know, Albertans uh, have access to natural spaces, as, as I was, you know, talking about earlier, we need it, we need a break from our day to day life. And so to have these places available, it shouldn't be considered an enterprise. It should absolutely be something that, you know, we've already invested in through our tax dollars. We've entrusted these lands to our government. And now they're being provided to us as a resource. They're, they're a public resource. And so, yeah, absolutely. I 100% agree that 
that's one of the main reasons that these sites are here and, and we shouldn't be treating them as just an enterprise that's bleeding money. What, what do you make of uh, the uh, NDP's Don't Go Breaking My Parks uh, campaign? Besides the name, which I think is uh, totally cringe. Uh, I love Elton John as much as the next person, but, um, you know, I, I, I don't know um, if that uh, 80s pop culture reference is going to resonate with the kids, but uh, what, what, what do you make of their, their uh, sort of taking this campaign up? I, you know, I think they're, they're playing their role as the opposition to, to push back on a, on a decision like this. Um, you know, I, I, I probably can't, can't say too much more than that. Um, but, you know, it's, it's important that the current leading government is hearing it from all sides, that, that you know, everybody, you know, why, why are we politicizing parks? Everybody cares about them. Everybody has a stake in them. Um, yeah. They're an important public resource. We should continue to have them. So, yeah, and um, obviously, you know, you're reluctant to comment further because um, your um, <laughs> your organization is nonpartisan. But how do you sort of uh, thread that needle when the governing party is doing something that? directly impacts your work right like that mm -hmm. that seems to be a tricky balance to strike in and you know it's not just with conservation right um you know uh, you know teachers for mm -hmm. example or um you know bureaucrats and all that um they can't be partisan but at the same time uh partisan decisions are directly affecting their line of work so yeah yeah, no, that, that I, I, I think that's a great question. And it is, it's a really fine line, especially as a nonpartisan organization to walk. But, you know, when it, when it boils down to it, um, we're critical. We've been critical of every government. <laughs> you know, no one, no one is sacred um, when it comes to environmental decisions. But yeah, it's, it's, it's tough. You know, you gotta, you gotta make sure that, that, you are, you, <laughs> are you saying that in 55 years of El in Alberta that there hasn't been a government that environmentalists have thought like these are our guys? You're saying yeah, we haven't found saying, the one yet. You're kidding. <laughs> I'm shocked. Well, on, on that topic, too, um, what were some of the issues with the previous government? What were some decisions they made or decisions they didn't make that were um, negatively impacting the park system. So, you know, there were, there were a couple decisions that came up right before the election that could have been good opportunities, but there was a lot of misinformation out there. Uh, heels were dragged, uh, you know, and, and um, uh, ministerial orders weren't finalized in order to just apply these parks into the system. Um, and so you may be familiar with uh, a couple of them. The first was the Bighorn. Um, and then the other one was um, Twin River Heritage Rangeland Natural Area, which is a mouthful. That's probably, it's closer in the grasslands, but there were these two different sites. And we were proposing, well, the government was proposing at the time to make new parks, implement public land use zones, manage cumulative effects of land uses, um, and, you know, we 
criticized not the decision to do that because it's a positive thing to create a new park but how the information was being put out there it was you know there was this really confusing consultation document that no one if you were just i'm a park user i you know like to use the lands uh, in the bighorn region it was really difficult to understand and engage with that opportunity and so you know that's that's one example i could probably come up with a couple better examples if i was given a bit more time but um yeah the the bighorn was really frustrating because uh you know their information misinformation spread like wildfire people weren't able to engage with the public consultation process and at the end of the day it didn't happen um and it was a pretty controversial uh it was a pretty controversial proposal as well because of the opposition at that time the united conservative party um you know had their own thoughts about how these lands should be managed um and so yeah it was disappointing at the end of the day that it didn't happen but you know the way they went about doing this proposal kind of made it 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 rife for criticism and um for controversy and i think that's one of the reasons it didn't end up happening now correct me if i'm wrong but i'm pretty sure that recently the uc uh, there was bighorn was in the news again recently i think the ucp basically just like turned off whatever was in the works or was it whatever process had been started are you saying that maybe like just the like this was another thing because we talk about this sometimes on the show that there are things that the NDP sort of I hate to use the word half-assed because they tried but I'm saying that, that, that they didn't go all the way with certain things and then it made them easier to turn off from a new government's perspective is that kind of what we're talking about here like did they Bighorn did, could they have gone farther with that so that the UCP would have had less or like a harder time shutting it off, which I've, like I said, I recently read that they did. Right. I, th I think if they had finalized the decision, I think the timing of it also was, was pretty poor. You know, um, the Bighorn proposal came out right before the election. And so obviously it was going to be rolled into platforms instead of just being, here's a parks proposal. Let's think about parks. It's let's think about the election instead. Right. And so, but yeah, yeah, you're right. In, in terms of just like, you know, the, the orders that needed to be signed were never signed. The decision was never made. Um, it was never finalized. And so that does make it a lot more difficult or a lot easier uh, for the following government to just say, okay, we're going to change our minds about this and, and do our own thing. Now, from a, from a Alberta Wilderness Association perspective, um, we talked about whether, you know, what we watched those two governments, the juxtaposition of the NDP and the UCP, like, the difference in how they uh, go about their business. Uh, I guess I want to know: Does the did the AWA um, have any dialogue with with governments? Like, what it, I, I imagine you have none with the UCP. What was there dialogue with the NDP? Like, did you have a relationship with the government at all? Um, well, we have a relationship with a lot of the civil servants. Um, but in terms of the government, it, it's hit and miss a lot of the time, you know, sometimes you'll send a letter, you'll get a response several months later. It's, it's always difficult to get a sit down meeting uh, with a government representative. And so, uh, you know, across governments, we've had a pretty difficult time with both with, with meeting with the upper levels, whether it's, you know, ministers and premiers or even deputy ministers. But uh, yeah, here and there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's good. I mean, that's good. I mean, obviously you guys have your own 
thing. Like your job isn't like, you're not a government lobbyist organization, right? Like your job as the AWA isn't to lobby the government for policy decisions. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that maybe things like these closures are forcing your hand a little bit? Because um, it seems to me that like, this must be sort of putting some other priorities on the back burner this year. Like I imagine you guys sort of turned your focus toward this a little bit. Did you not? Uh, For me, it definitely has. Uh, But you know, we're, we're a small organization. We cover a lot of different areas, um, but between the staff that we have, um, but yeah, it's definitely taken up a lot of airtime to, to work on this parks issue and to bring it to light. Um, in terms of what you're saying about lobbying, I think it's, it's also a fine line between, you know, advocacy versus lobby. Um, but I think the important thing here is that, you know, as a public interest organization, our job is just to make sure that the information is in the hands of the public, that as many people as possible have the tools that they need to be able to, whether it's write to their MLA, call Minister Nixon, uh, reach out and push back on this decision if they so choose. Um, and so that's, I think it's, that's been our focus all along, you know, as an organization for, for 55 years. Um, and I haven't seen it change much, but yeah, decisions like this definitely uh, take up a lot of resources. So listen, what I, I want to, and you kind of touched on it just then, because like, we always like to talk about sort of what can Albertans do or what does the future hold, these kinds of things. And you talked about, you know, you can write to Minister Nixon and we do, what do we do? And first of all, what can we do? to stop this and more importantly with everything that's going on in 2020 and all the things that people are facing um, on a day-to-day basis why does this what what why should this issue come to the forefront for people and and what what does it mean if we don't do that sorry jeremy you have something to say how do you deal with that uh Mm -hmm. frustration when elected officials aren't uh necessarily taking you seriously Yeah. Um, So two thoughts. One kind of on what Scott was saying about there's so many decisions happening right now. And also what you're saying, Jeremy, like people are burnt out. Um, One thing that I think makes the parks so important is that this is the tip of the iceberg. You know, this is this is just the beginning. We're seeing uh, $5 million savings right now. But from documents that have been accessed through a FOIP, we know that I think it's it's another uh, $12 million savings that they're projecting in the next budget for parks. And so we're going to see more changes like this happening down the line. Um, and if we don't push back on this, it's just going to be the first of many decisions that are made. So in terms of, of what you can do about this, um, it can be really frustrating to write, to hear back the same template language. Um, but I think one thing that is important is that we continue to do so. Because we need to have it at least on the record that if this decision goes through, they did it in the face of widespread public opposition. People didn't want this to happen and they did it anyway. And so I think that's important to at least have on the record um, in terms of, you know, just staying sane through all of this. The parks are an important resource for that. You know, we need to be able to just have places to breathe and to get out. Um, and so that's something <laughs> that I recommend doing for sure. And if you're, if you're in need of, of a break from, from letter writing and being faced with these constant stressful policy decisions, just go take a breather, go for a hike, go for a walk, uh, maybe come back to it. You'll have some renewed energy and some inspiration from being in these natural spaces. 
Um, but yeah, it's, it's a challenging time right now. I do definitely still encourage people to write and if they need to, they can always reach out to us for, for resources, information, forward us your letters, forward us the responses that you've gotten. We'd be happy to provide thoughts on it. I think it's fair to say that we're talking about um, like a decision that, you know, in, in a lot of ways they're trying to slip under the radar a little bit, right? Like we, you, uh, one of the other things that we talked when we barely touched on it today, but was this lack of transparency and public consultation for the government. Like I know that that was a huge, huge uh, bother for you and like red flag on what this whole thing is. And I think again, once again, like when they, when they're not even talking to you about it before they make this decision, like you can pretty much rest assured that your best interests aren't in in their hands and, and something like this, right? Doesn't that give you the, the idea that there's something nefarious going on here that like when they say, don't worry, we're not going to sell these off to industrial uh, corporations and things like that. How, why should we believe them? We shouldn't that when they don't even talk to us beforehand, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, the FOIP documents that I was kind of talking about before speak for themselves. Um, you know, it came out that, that the, the minister's upper level advisors said, uh, you know, don't just do one set of public consultation, do two, you know, do one that's generally just letting people know what this decision means, which as you know, we know there's a lot of misinformation, there's a lack of information out there, and then do a second one that's site specific, so that, you know, say folks in Medicine Hat, you know what's happening with, uh, I think it's the Michelle and Bullshead Reservoir, those are not so far away. Right. Uh, you know, folks need to know what's happening in their local parks because they care about them so strongly. And so, yeah, do two sets of public consultation. And the minister deliberately chose not to do that. He chose to ignore that advice. And so, um, you know, that it does seem pretty nefarious to just be holding back this information from people, holding back these opportunities to get involved in a decision that relates to a public resource. In a province where it seems like that is like something people care a lot about, you'd think that this would, that would be bothersome to people that, 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 you know, we don't like to hear that dad knows best. Don't worry about it. We don't, we're not supposed, we don't generally like that. So it kind of weirds me out that people sort of allow this to happen. Um, we're kind of get we're at our time here. So we're going to wrap up, but Grace, I want to say, ask, give you the chance to have the last word here and just um, anything, any thought, like I said, like um, just sort of a sum up of, of, how what your thoughts are on this and what's next for the AWA as far as its fight toward this and maybe some of the other things you guys got on the go. Mm, yeah, no, thank, I just want to say a huge thank you again for inviting me uh, to be on the podcast. This is just a great opportunity and I love talking about parks. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank um, you. Why I'm here today, but um, yeah, I just, I think that these, this is really important for us as the public for communities, for people, just to make sure that a decision like this doesn't go through, it doesn't set a terrible precedent so that we continue eroding our park system. We wanna make sure that it's strong, it's there for both you know, environmental protection and for everyday people. Um, and you know, in terms of what's next for us, we're, we're trying to access information from the government. We're trying to get more out of them for what this decision means, um, particularly interested in, in the the assessment that they use to identify these 164 sites. If they're saying it's because people aren't using them, well, show us the numbers. Um, <laughs> but at the Arts. end of the day, you know, yeah, we think these places are tremendously important. Um, and yeah, we'd love to hear stories from anyone who's, who's seen any of the parks on the, on the list and said, you know, that's important to me. Um, so 
So, so, so speaking of usage of these things, and you're a Southern Alberta expert, can you give us, give our listeners a few, maybe three, four, whatever, of the lesser known areas or spots or parks that uh, they should maybe check out um, in this, maybe even in the forgotten corner area? Where are some of these places that people might not know about that they should go and uh, utilize? mentioned the uh, Michelle and Bullshead Reservoir. They are just on the very edge of Alberta's gorgeous grassland country, like this big um, undisturbed patch of grassland, which you can go and just explore and enjoy. Uh, Little Fish Lake Provincial Park. That one's a bit closer to Drumheller, so a little bit further away from Medicine Hat. Um, but it's just a gorgeous, gorgeous area um, where you can, you know, spend a wonderful day trip. And it also contains um, an endangered species, uh, piping plover, which is a shorebird, which can really only nest in this special habitat, which is found in that location. Um, so places like that, yeah. Um, oh, uh, near me, I'm sorry. No, <laughs> the you're Ghost good. Airstrip Provincial Recreation Area, um, anywhere in the Ghost Wipers area. It's just gorgeous to check out and, and go spend some time in our mountains and in our foothills. Um, but yeah, go out, check out a park, tell me about it. Uh, feel free to write to AWA. We'd love to hear your stories. Well, and we're lucky in Alberta. I mean, that's what she's, I mean, I, like just listening to that, we got everything from the grasslands to the lakes, to the mountains. And like, it's a beautiful country to go check out. So please, please go do that. Grace, thank you so much for coming on the Forgotten Corner. Um, we really appreciate the expertise that you brought here today. This was a subject that uh, I was excited to learn more about and also maybe a little bit of shame that I don't know more about. And so thank you for giving us some insight um, and turning attention and putting the spotlight on something that, like you said, it's extremely important. And this is not something that we can get back. You have to fight for it while we have it, folks. We, we don't want to lose it and have to try to reacquire it. You know, these are some, these are, these, these are the, especially in COVID when we're not allowed to do all the other things that we do. We've, we've all been getting outside more often and doing things. I mean, show some love for your parks do what you can to fight back. In the show notes, we're going to link to some things you can read. We're going to link to Grace's piece in the Narwhal. We'll uh, uh, maybe put up the AWA's email address or something and see if we can't uh, get you guys uh, some support. Give these guys support. Speaking of support, this is the time in the show where we thank uh, our patrons that go above and beyond. Um, what we could ever ask for. So to uh, Chris Sterwald, to Big Red Machine, to Dave Bonmiller, you guys are amazing. You keep us going. We couldn't do it without you. To the rest of our patrons, really appreciate it. Thank you for the support. Smash the five-star review, you guys. And uh, feel free to send us uh, comments or thoughts and let us know what you think of the show. Appreciate everybody being here this early in the morning. Love you guys. Thanks, Jerome. Thank you, Grace. Thank you, Quiet Mo. We'll see you guys next week. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.